listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I have a fresh conversation with inspiring, interesting, and knowledgeable people. My conversation today is with Tony Hobson Sr. The senior part is important because there is also a Tony Hobson Jr., who is also involved in the work that Tony Sr. started. Hmm, that gets confusing. Tony Hobson Sr. founded Self Enhancement Inc. in 1981. SEI began as an outgrowth of a week long summer basketball camp aimed at inspiring youth and offering them life skills, mentorship, and guidance. The SEI staff developed very deep, meaningful relationships with at risk students starting around eight years, and the relationship continues through their early to mid 20s. Hi, Tony, how are you today? I'm great, Janine. That's great. Good. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Now, I know for a fact that you truly are an inspiration. I've seen it for myself and I've experienced it. So I'd like to set the stage for our listeners before we jump in. Is that okay? That's great. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. In 1997, the Center for Self-Enhancement was built. It's a physical representation of Tony's passion for making a difference in the lives of the kids and also in the neighborhood. The attractive and uplifting 62,000 square foot space includes a gymnasium, a performing arts auditorium, dance studio, library, computer lab, and a science lab. The building is located in a neighborhood with a history of gang violence, drug dealing, crime, and neglect. Before construction began, Tony and the other SEI senior staff sat down with the Kirby Block Crips, the gang in control of the neighborhood at the time. They discussed SEI's mission and managed to enlist their support of the project. The city of Portland also fully supported SEI's mission, so much so that they leased the land the Center for Self-Enhancement stands on for 50 years for only $100. Now, Tony, you took on a huge project, and I really want to hear your story about how you grew up, what inspired you to take on this incredible mission, because you've changed the lives of thousands, literally, thousands of kids. And I may be wrong, but I don't think there are many programs out there that are as successful as yours. So I will be quiet now and let you speak. Take it away. Well, Janine, first of all, thanks for uh, for inviting me on. This is a great opportunity to kind of share our story. And we certainly believe that we do have a story to tell. And, you know, quite frankly, we've probably not told our story as well as well as, as well as we should uh, given how how successful we've been over the years but part of it I part of it I think is because we're we're in a place called Portland Oregon and when you talk about at-risk youth and especially uh, youth of color not many people think much about Portland Oregon as a place that is that diverse that's and, true and that's probably true to to a large degree but yet there, there are a number of uh, children and families of color in the Portland metro area. Uh, actually, the state is, is growing in terms of uh, folks of color. Actually, the Latino population is growing at a rapid pace. But mm-hmm. for us and the services that we provide uh, primarily to African-American students and, and families, uh, the number uh, is, is not growing at a very rapid pace. But there is a number of us in the Portland metro area. So in terms of you know my story, wow. 
a lot that I could share. I mean, growing up in, in, in Portland, I'm 64 years old now, so I grew up during the civil rights movement. So a lot of the motivation and the inspiration to do the work that I do today and have done for God, almost 40 years now comes from the struggles that I saw as a, a, a young child growing up during the civil rights movement and some of the negativity that I experienced as a young black male growing up in a predominantly white community, white schools, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and having that kind of experience uh, and looking for ways in which I could give back to a community that supported me uh, in many ways uh, that came through through athletics was the first opportunity I had to have a great deal of success. And as I saw the community around me rally around us as we were you know, playing basketball and having success and winning state championship in my senior year mm -hmm. uh, and seeing, uh, seeing the black community rally around that uh, was, was a very positive experience for me. And winning a championship was a very uh, exciting and, and motivational, inspiring uh, situation for me. So having had the opportunity to come through that uh, gave me the opportunity then to think about how I could give back and the schools that I attended, predominantly white, a lot of kids of color not doing well, not making it, uh, I begin to think about, well, either you can be a part of the problem or you can be a part of the solution. So, <laughs> we, so, so we looked at opportunities to, to then try to figure out how we could give back to the community, how we could set up opportunities for kids to, to learn things that could keep them in school, get them graduated, and uh, help them become what we call positive contributing citizens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now you started with a, a summer camp, right? We did. We started with a summer, uh, we call it a self-enhancement camp, but realistically it was a basketball camp. And, you know, I was a frustrated athlete myself, played a lot of basketball, went to college on basketball scholarships, was in the Portland Trail Blazers rookie camp in 1977 after they won uh, the NBA championship so going through that and going and participating in a lot of camps myself, I learned uh, a lot uh, about myself. And what I saw in a lot of camps were the rolling out of the basketball and a lot of the conversation around sports, but not enough conversation about how you can identify skills that come natural in sports and how you can transfer those skills back to the classroom and to other career areas. So when we started the camp, we wanted to do that. I mean, it wasn't just the basketball. It was about, you know, career exploration. It was about SAT prep. It, you know, we talked about current events. And mostly we talked about the skills that you learn in sports and how to transfer those skills back. I mean, an easy example would be, you know, in sports, you know, you dream about in basketball being at the foul line and making that free throw or shooting that shot with thousands of people screaming and, and you're, you're able to walk up to that line and make that free throw because you've dreamed about it and you practiced it over and over again. But we get the same kid in a math class getting ready for a math test and can't handle the pressure mm. and just totally freezes because they've not dreamed about, you know, getting a perfect score in math. They haven't practiced it in the same way. So sometimes it's just about, you know, what you what you deem to be important to you and your ability to envision being successful in it and practicing it over and over again. You know, it's always interesting to me 
why some of our kids could go into an English class and have a teacher say something to them and the kid blows up, says the wrong thing, gets kicked out of class, but that same kid will have a coach say any number of negative things to them, but they don't blow up against the coach because they want playing time. Mm -hmm. So helping them understand the difference between the two and use that to their advantage is part of what we started uh, with our self-enhancement camps. Well, I can see how that's really important. And, you know, right now I'm helping to raise two teenage boys and, you know, they're the, they're, understanding of what's important is coming from their young uh, perspective that doesn't have, you know, much life experience yet. And so they, in fact, you said math. One is, you know, having a a really difficult time with getting his math and he needs a lot of help. And part of it is because he doesn't see how important it is yet. You know, um, like you said, the, the kids see the importance of basketball and sports and they're really into it, but they, they're not taking the longer view yet of, you know, how important, uh, that English is and the math and social studies and, you know, other subjects. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things we try to point out is that, I mean, part one of the classes that we have in our camps is a uh, class that we call Life After Sports. Mm-hmm. And we try to help kids realize that there will come a time when you won't be involved in sports anymore. So if you're going to play sports, you use sports uh, as a means to an end as opposed to the end. So if you can play well enough to get, you know, like I did, a, a college education, that's a wonderful thing. But if you're only playing sports because you envision it being the NBA or the NFL, you know, the percentages of individuals who actually make it to that level are few and far between. Mm-hmm. But the things that you could learn along the way uh, through sports and, and the doors that it might open for you uh, in many ways will take you much further than the sport itself. Uh, so that that's part of the message. So that's where we started the program uh, early on. Uh, was very successful with one-week camps for senior boys and then junior boys and then middle school boys. And then young ladies saw what was happening and said, you know, what about us? So then we <laughs> did camp for, for the young ladies as well. So today we still do uh, about four camps a year. Uh, so, it, But it quickly grew out of that. We did that uh, for about seven years, I think from about 81 till about uh, 88. But in about 85, 86, we uh, had the opportunity to participate and develop a program out in the largest housing development in the Portland area in Columbia Villa at the time. Mm -hmm. And so we did a a month-long program out there. uh, And it wasn't just basketball then. We actually had added some uh, some new wrinkles uh, to it and we're doing some performing arts things. But it was like uh, a half-day program for a full month and we were still doing our camps. But that time was significant in that uh, I had the opportunity in our camps to work with several young men. But when we had the first drive-by shooting Mm. in the Portland metropolitan area, uh, two of the kids that were involved in our basketball camp and and one of the kids were involved in the Columbia Villa program, or I tried to get him to be involved in that Columbia Villa program, he opted out. Uh, we're a part of uh, one of them was a shooter and one was the victim in the first drive-by shooting. Mm-hmm. And I actually talked to this kid and tried to convince him to come into our program out in Columbia Villa after the camp. And he opted out and he opted out for all of the right reasons in his mind because he was part of uh, the Crips 
uh, Columbia Villa Crips, and mm -hmm. he was making money to take care of his family. He was the eldest son, uh, single parent household, you know, on welfare, and felt like you know he didn't want to disrespect us by coming into our program and bringing that type of of uh, activity with him. Mm -hmm. So he opted out. The other kid was coming out of a store, got in the car with his friends. They were traveling, uh, uh, riding around. They decided to go out to Columbia Villa, rode by the basketball court, and all, they had automatic weapons, and, you know, they, they, they filled the, the basketball court up with automatic gunfire, and the other kid happened to be on the court at that time, got shot in the head, first drive-by shooting. Wow. Well, after that, you know, obviously our city now understands we have a gang problem and uh, wanted to do something about it. So what we were doing at that time through the camps and the month-long program turned into a full year-round effort. We got money from the city to expand that program into uh, one of our high schools into, and also to three of our middle schools in the Portland metro area. So, you know, it's interesting. Oftentimes, you have to have a tragedy of that magnitude to get the resources to provide the services that children and, and families actually need, but that that was the case for us, and you know the city jumped in at that point and provided some resources for us to expand the program. Mm -hmm. Well, at least they jumped in. It's too bad they couldn't have been proactive instead of reactive. But yeah, yeah, uh, un unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so yeah, and, and no, go ahead. Well, and, and then shortly after that, we <clears throat> we started that that effort and um, got it going. We had the opportunity to then get picked up by one of the major corporations, U.S. Bank. And U.S. Bank at the time, uh, corporate offices were here in Portland, Oregon. I mean, they've been bought out several times uh, since their origination here in Portland. But they were looking to do something major uh, in our community to give back. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time and had the opportunity to meet some of their uh, employees, uh, Linda Wright, who was working for them at the time. And she asked us, what did we need? What did we want? What would make the difference in our program? And we said, well, what we need more than anything is our own facility, because uh, right now, working through the schools, when they close, we close, and mm. they're not open on the weekends. And most kids are getting in trouble, you know, after the school day and on the weekends. So, I mean, God, it was incredible that she actually heard that and went back to her office and met with the rest of the staff there and the president and the leadership, and they decided that they wanted to help us get that done. So we started a capital campaign to build the Center for Self-Enhancement, started that in like 92, 93, and over the next three, four years, uh, raised at the time about $10 million to to build the facility. Wow. Uh, and, and, and we built the facility in Unthanked Park, which was a park that was run by the Kirby Street Crips and uh, one of the uh, other leaders here at SEI, Ray Larry and myself, and actually that conversation was read, was run more by Ray than myself, but I was a part of it, had that conversation with some of the gang members to uh, that let us, and, and we actually had to ask for their permission to build uh, a facility in Unthanked Park. And uh, we had to, to convince them that this was a project that would not only benefit the community, but would benefit their younger brothers and sisters, who we hoped that they would not want to see in the same kind of gang activity that they had been involved in. Mm -hmm. So they not only uh, 
decided to support us, but they also protected the project uh, for the whole 18 months that we were building. I mean, we had no vandalism, no graffiti at all because the gang members decided that this was a community project that they wanted to to actually support. Uh, So we got their blessings and got their support and uh, and the project went went really well. Uh, We ended up having a a drive-by shooting across the street from the project and we had everybody on the project just kind of packed up and, and left. And, you know, we had to pull them all together and have a conversation because that same day after they left, the yellow tape on the sidewalk was still there. And we had, you know, young eight, nine, ten year olds walking down the street to go home and they had to walk by the yellow tape. So when we pulled all of the workers back together, we had to help them understand that, look, this is just not another project. You're building a safe haven for kids in this community to be safe because they don't have the ability to pack up and move somewhere else. This is their community. Mm -hmm. And we were able to convince them to actually come back. And we ended up getting even more in-kind support from the uh, construction community than we originally hoped for. We got well over a million dollars of in-kind that was given back to the project after that. So they bought into the project as something kind of special, and, and it was kind of special. I mean, it was the first time that something of this magnitude had been built in the community. And still today, we're one of the few agencies, a community-based agency that has a facility like this that serves the community Um, that surrounds it. I mean, in most places you have the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, Salvation Army, but the Center for Self-Enhancement was built by by those of us in the community and is owned and operated by those of us in the community, which is a little unique in itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm curious. Do you feel like the you got the the support, you got the uh, the Crips on board? Uh, because of your appealing to them that they don't want their younger brothers and sisters to end up the same way they were? Yeah, I think that was part of it, but part of it was respect. And see, and, and, and mm-hmm. respect is a, is, a, is a very key word. The fact that we respected them enough to go have the conversation mm-hmm. empowered them. That's what they liked more than anything, the fact that you cared enough about us to even ask us. Because if we had to chose not to ask them, then they could have made it very difficult for us to build. I mean, they could have stole from the project. I mean, they could have sniped us at night. I mean, they could have did any number of things to make our lives difficult to build here. But the fact that we respected them enough to ask for their permission and to ask for them to be a part of it was the key. Now, that doesn't mean that we condone their activity. I mean, if they were still in the community selling drugs or doing negative things, we didn't condone any of that. Mm -hmm. But we respected them as human beings enough to have that conversation. That's what they appreciated more than anything. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something that uh, is a microcosm of something bigger like in on the planet with diff, between different countries and and factions that are against each other that should be used more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean everybody wants to be validated. Right. I mean everyone wants to feel like they're important and I guarantee you we know a lot of individuals who go into gangs 
because they want to be validated. They are kids that have been ostracized, bullied in school, decided, you know, don't do well academically, so they're not feeling confident. So they move to a place where they can be confident. And oftentimes that's with your, your gang friends where you can get validation. And, you know, and, and there's many things in, in, in the world and on the planet where people come together for that kind of validation. It's not always negative. In some cases, you know, you have fraternities and sororities and all those things. In many ways, that's nothing but a gang. You know, they're not shooting people or selling drugs, but they're coming together to, to get validation and to be a part of a group. And in many cases in the inner city, the only things that kids oftentimes find themselves able to join are gangs that are less than positive. Mm-hmm. And we just need to be able to provide more options and opportunities for young people so that they have more choices. So rather than to step into a gang type of activity, we can keep you involved in something through school that and help you find your gift so that you can be involved in something positive as opposed to something negative. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you're saying is that if there are alternative options to joining a gang, that a good number of kids would choose those alternative options if they had them. Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing this work for over 40 years. I mean, one of the themes in our program, one of our sayings is that life has options. <laughs> so we try to provide as many options as possible for young people. We believe that every child on the planet has a gift. Every human being has a gift. The challenge is finding out what your gift is. I believe that there's actually a lot of adults in the world today with a job that is not their gift. They're just going to work every day and they're putting in their time, but there's something else that they're a lot more passionate about that if they could get paid to do their passion, that, that would be the dream type of situation. So for us, we're trying to expose our young people to as many options and opportunities as possible in hopes that they will find their gift, the light will come on, and they will be able to basically thrive around something that they're gifted to do. Mm-hmm. But that's the job of adults to do for kids. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we just want the kids to go out and find it without the adults doing their part. And we often say, you know, with all of the challenges that we have uh, across the, the world and, and here in the United States of America, with all of these challenges around young people, and we blame young people left and right for all of the issues and things that they get into, but we often say here that we don't have a youth problem in America. We have an adult problem in America. Kids learn based on not what we say, but based on what they see. Mm-hmm. And if when adults get it right, young people will follow. But adults talk out of both sides of their mouths. They want to tell kids what's right, and then they physically go do what's wrong. And they expect the kids to listen to them and not see what they do. So for us, it's very difficult. And it's, it's tough work because as adults, that means that you have to live what you're saying to mm-hmm. kids. you got to live that out. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, I, I drink alcohol. I'm a social drinker. Mm-hmm. But the last time I bought alcohol in, in my neighborhood grocery store was probably 20 years ago. And I stopped doing it because I was buying that alcohol and I had some kids that were in our program in, in the line with me. And they looked <laughs> at me buying that alcohol and said, oh, Mr. Hobson's buying some alcohol. 
which was perfectly legal because I'm an adult, but they were looking up to me. So right. if they're looking up right. to me as the person that they want to emulate and I'm buying alcohol, then they can't wait to buy some too. Mm -hmm. So I stopped buying alcohol in the community because I'm trying to give the example for my kids that I want them to see. And that's not the example that I want them to see. Right, right. And, you know, when a, a, a young being is, is born, um, they're a blank slate. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I don't think anyone comes in good or bad. They're just a blank slate and um they're they're like little sponges. You know, they 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 just they take in everything they see and hear. Right, they do. Well, for for us, I mean, it, it's just uh I don't know. We we call ourselves here at Self Enhancement a multi-service organization. That's because we do so many things. We started out considering ourselves a, a youth development agency, and a lot of the work that we do it is with youth, but it's much more broader than that right now. And you know, we have a whole model that that we use. We call it the relationship model, in which we train all of our our staff how to build relationships with with young people and and families. Uh, you know, we have a mentor role, a, a teacher role, a parent role, and there's a whole process that we go through in trying to train our people how to better serve children and families. We have what we call the culture of success, and as we were talking about, you know, how we, what we value and building relationships with kids, our culture of success, we talk about the fact that we want all of our people to believe that all children can and will succeed we want them to actually believe what I was talking about earlier, that, you know, all children have a gift, that, you know, all children can learn, that we see children for who they can become rather than, than who they are today. I mean, all of these things are, are a part of our value system of, and our culture of success, which is very, very important, important. And we believe that adults should be 100% responsible for the relationship with kids. And I, as an educator and a person that worked in the public school system for 10 years, I can tell you that there are a lot of teachers that don't believe the things that I just said. They don't believe that all kids can learn. I mean, they prejudge kids when they walk through the door, sometimes based on race and sometimes based on economics. Mm -hmm. And many of them don't believe that they're responsible for the relationship. They'll quickly say, well, the kid has to meet me halfway. Why? They're a kid. You are the adult and you're getting paid. You should go 100% there. If that saves the kid's life, if that gets the kid on the right track, then why wouldn't you do that to go all the way to get a kid to do what, uh, what you need them to do to hopefully become successful? And then we also have a variety of, uh, we'll, I'll call them rules because most people would see them as rules, but we call them, them the, uh, the, the SEI standards. And there's a number of things that we train our people to do, and we have all of our folks memorize the SEI standards because it gives us a way in which we can work with each other. For instance, our standard number one is that in SEI, we greet each other every day with a smile and a handshake <laughs> to strengthen the relationship between us. And see, in, in the public school system, a teacher that's not at the front door shaking hands with the kids as they come through has missed the moment because if you do that, you'll know who's having a good day and who's having a bad day before they ever hit the chair. Right. You will find that out at the front door, which will then give you ammunition and information about how to deal with your, your, your kids from that point on. I mean, I, we have a standard that in SEI we honor and respect each other, and so we address one another with proper language and speech. 
In SEI, we value the space of ourselves and others and are careful not to intrude or injure each other. In mm -hmm. SEI, we are mindful of what is true, and we strive to be honest in word and deed. In SEI, we treasure our rich culture, and we hold the cultures of all people in high regard. And in SEI, we strive to reflect our beauty both inwardly in our understanding and outwardly in our appearance. Those standards, all of our kids memorize those standards, and we use those standards to kind of shape and mold and hold kids accountable to their actions on a daily basis. And almost anything that they do, we can draw it back to one of these standards to try to hold them accountable. So the kids recognize that, and it at least gives us kind of a framework to work with our kids on a daily basis as we're building these critical relationships with children and families. Mm -hmm. Well, to go back to uh, when you said, I really like the idea of greeting the kids, um, yeah. because that also ties back into what you were saying earlier about the need for validation. Yes, yes, and, absolutely. And yeah. I think that, I mean, that's like right up front, you're, you're validating the kid by greeting them uh, with a smile, looking them in the eye, um, shaking their hand. I think that's incredible. It, I mean, it does. On the surface, I would imagine that that doesn't sound like a lot, but I can see where that would be huge. Well, and it's certainly a part of the whole relationship building process. And yeah, I don't know. I think most people will recognize that you know the key to most things in life is centered around relationships, whether it's a a husband or wife or you know, adults and, and their children, when you go to work, your co-workers, I mean, wherever you're at, it's going to be the relationship or the lack thereof mm -hmm. that's, going to, that's going to enter into the scenario at some point. So for us, we, we've come to realize this early in the game. And it's kind of interesting because today, many, many years after we started the relationship model, there's a whole lot of conversation now across the nation, especially as it relates to education and dealing with kids, about relationships and caring adults, and this seems to now become the answer to keeping kids on the right track. Well, we've been doing this for 40 years. You know, it, it's, it's kind of sad that we didn't kind of bottle this up and package it up and sell it because there's a lot of people that are now doing the same thing. I mean, now they got a number of things. Uh, restorative justice is now a big conversation out there, and trauma-informed care is the new one. Well, both of those are part of what we would, would have just been calling the relationship model and, and a way in which you interact with individuals and give them care based on where they happen to be at at any given point in time. Uh, so we've been on this uh, train for a very, very long time and have perfected a way to train people on it and have perfected a way in which we can work with children and families to get them across the finish line. And, you know, in terms of being successful, I mean, in America, there are a lot of young people on a daily basis that aren't making it. Right. Uh, graduation rates in urban centers are, are really poor. Here in Oregon, four years ago, Oregon had the worst graduation rates in the entire nation. You're kidding. Still, that yes, surprises four, me. Yes, yes, I, would, I would expect a lot more from Oregon. <laughs> Well, yeah, we, we would too, but today they're, we're fourth from the bottom. The reason why Oregon is so low is because we do a very, very bad job educating poor children, children of color, 
and children with disabilities. Now, children mm-hmm. with disabilities tend to be children that are in special ed. Mm-hmm. That's just a kind way to talk about special ed. Now, we in SEI, for as long as we've been around, at the high school level, we've averaged a 97% graduation rate. Wow. Actually, about five years ago, we took on additional services at Jefferson High School, which is the only predominantly African-American high school in the entire state of Oregon. When we increased our services there, Jefferson had a 54% graduation rate. Five years later, we had the entire school up to an 83% graduation rate. And the cohort of kids, and we had about 75, 80% of the kids in the school got into our program we had a 93% graduation rate. So in terms of outcomes and what America says it wants to see happen with poor children and children of color in terms of education and graduation, we know how to do that. And And we have data from the Oregon Department of Education to support what we do and the model in which we use. Now, having said all of that, you would think that our state would just be knocking down our door trying to give us money to expand what we do all over the state of Oregon, given how bad our graduation rates are. And that's not happening. Wow. That's absolutely not happening. We have to struggle for every dollar we can get to, uh, to, to maintain the programming that we have and the little bit of expansion that we do here and there. Uh, and and that, that leaves me sometimes questioning people's honesty about what they care about. I mean, Mm -hmm. in in this nation, we say we care about all kids. We say we want to educate all kids, but we we rarely put our money where our mouth is. Mm -hmm. And Oregon has done a really, really bad job of putting its money where its mouth is. I mean, it's always talking about equity and diversity and educating all kids, but through their own data, we have given them a model and outcomes that far exceed anything that they've ever seen in the entire state. And yet we get very little dollars from the state education department to support what we do. Wow. You know, I I really don't understand that. To me, education is, it should be a a, a right, not a privilege. And, And everyone should have access to good education. And if there are underlying um, you know, underlying difficulties, problems with the home life and all, and that has to be taken into consideration. And, you know, from my perspective, all, everyone should have available to them at least two years of higher education free of cost because it, it it's, I think that is what's going to make a huge difference in our society. Well, uh, that would be great. I mean, I, I think in some states they're trying to do that. I think here in Oregon, at the, uh, I think there's some, some ideas afoot around that making. Uh, and in fact, I think they've already approved some scenarios by which, depending on where you're at economically, if you meet a certain criteria, uh, you can go to college free. I believe. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that, but I, I think if that's not happening already, uh, there's some conversation around that. So. You know, but 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 even if I mean at a younger age, I mean I think the challenges that we have start at a much younger age. I mean, right. you know, elementary, middle, high school, trying to get kids prepared to then go to college, uh, and and not enough of that is happening. I mean, once a kid graduates from high school and then moving on to college and having college be uh, be uh, supported by by government or whomever would be a a great addition, a great addition. 
Right. But the kids have to be prepared first. I mean, they... <laughs> absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's where our work comes in on a regular basis, trying to work with kids. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, r- really why SEI and, 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 and what, what we do in our self-enhancement program, you know, I would say if one thinks about what good parents would do for their children on a daily basis is what we do, depending on who the kid is. Most 75, 80% of our kids are coming from a single parent household. Mm. And oftentimes, whether it's, it's the tutorial and it's extra academic help, but it's so much broader than that because we see that many kids who struggle in school, it has very little to do with the teacher and the academics in the school. It has to do with all of the additional issues and challenges that kid is coming from. Mm-hmm. So education for us, we don't believe starts at the school. It starts at home. It includes a community and it, it flows back into the school setting. So when we look at education, we look at it from a holistic approach. You have to be providing services not only at school, but you have to know what's happening in that environment that that kid is coming from, and you need to know what's happening at home. So we believe that in the same way that you support kids, you need to support the adults in that home situation. Like I said earlier, not a youth problem, adult problem. Mm-hmm. You show me an at-risk kid, I would say follow that kid home, and I will show you some at-risk adults. The adults tend to be a bigger part of the issue. And if you're only servicing the kid and you send that kid back home every night to a dysfunctional home situation that's not getting any support, your ability to have maximum success will certainly be lessened by the fact that you're not servicing this from a, from a holistic approach. So we actually have coordinators. Many people would call them mentors, which I think is an overused term these days, but uh <laughs> for purposes of people understanding, we'll call them a mentor, but ours is called a coordinator who has a caseload of of kids that they're responsible for. And when I say responsible, I mean they're responsible for making sure that every kid on their caseload has success. Now, we do it from a collective approach because a coordinator could have anywhere from 35 to 40 kids on their caseload, and all of the kids that are on that caseload don't have the same needs. We have maybe three, three levels of kids. We have... Uh, kids that uh, are in severe need, and then kids that are at risk, severe risk, at risk. Then we have some leadership kids, maybe 10% of those kids that may be on the caseload as well. And that's because we don't want kids in our program to view themselves as this is a program for only kids with trouble or kids that bad, so-called bad kids, et cetera. So there's a little bit of, of everything, but, but not 80 to 90% of the kids who come to us come to us because they are experiencing attendance problems, behavior problems, academic problems, or coming from some dysfunctional home situations and have been identified by teachers, counselors, administrators to come into our program. So that's how most of the kids get in. And once they're in, that coordinator's job is to make sure that they're successful. If a kid doesn't show up at school, we're on the phone trying to find out where they're at. If a kid gets to school, gets into a classroom, and gets into some trouble, our coordinator for that kid is going to get the first phone call before the vice principal of discipline gets that call. So our kids don't end up getting suspended and expelled at the same rate. And in most cities, there's a disproportionate number of kids of color being suspended and expelled our numbers are way down because we can step into that situation and work with that kid, get them settled down, and keep them in the classroom where if they're not in our program, that person 
that kid is dealing with a VP. Sometimes people that don't know how to work with our kids deal with our kids, and that kid ends up getting sent home when they, if they just had somebody that could relate to the kid, could have uh, stopped that situation in his tracks and kept the kid uh, in school. So that coordinator is a very important, has a very important role uh, in our way of servicing kid and we all, kids. And we also have a parent coordinator who does similar work uh, with the parents of the kids. Uh, because oftentimes, as I said, they're, they need more work than, than the kids do. Right. Uh, you know, you have folks that, you know, don't have jobs, don't know how to navigate the system. Uh, and our parent coordinator is working with those parents, trying to help them. And sometimes it may be going back to school. Sometimes it may be helping them get a job or helping them navigate some of the systems that they need to get through to, to get support. And for SEI, one of the reasons why I call us a multi-service organization is that beyond the kids, there's a whole cadre of services that we provide, you know, at the adult level from uh, energy assistance to, you know, domestic violence, uh, career mapping, financial literacy, you know, parenting classes, a fatherhood program, parent-child development services. I mean, there's a whole social service side of SEI that does a multitude of things for the adults of the children that we're servicing as well. So it is truly a holistic approach uh, that we come with that, that gives us the kind of success that we get here at SEI, which is probably not, you know, I've not done any recent studies, but you know, you can't find many programs across this nation that have the kind of outcomes and successes that we have with low-income children of color uh, and, and families. I think that's incredible. I mean, it sounds like a 24 seven job. (laughs) Well, it it is. I mean, in fact, uh, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, that is what we tell our coordinators that we're 24 seven, 365 days a year. And now we say that, and that's not a a literal interpretation because Mm -hmm. obviously they're not doing that every single day, but they're available Mm -hmm. every single day. So if you have a caseload of 35 kids, that 35 kids have your cell number. If they call you at 3 o'clock in the morning, if they call you on Saturday afternoon, we expect that coordinator to immediately go into work mode and try to determine what that kid needs. So from that vantage point, it is definitely 24-7, 365 days a year. And believe me, there have been on many occasions where coordinators have gotten that call at 3 o'clock in the morning have gotten that call on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning or something like that when they're not officially supposed to be at work. Mm-hmm. Wow. How do you find such dedicated staff? Wow. I mean, um, that they you have to be pretty dedicated to Well, you to do. do you do. And I, and I think it's, uh, you know, working in self-enhancement, in my opinion, is uh, – not a job, it's a lifestyle. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are gifted in certain areas that would, would buy into that. You know, we're, we're looking for people who care about community, who care about children and families, who aren't in the business to make, you know, tons of money, but want a purpose-driven career. Mm-hmm. So many of the folks that we have, probably today I would say probably mm, 25, 30% of our staff, our past SEI students that have gone to college and come back and are working within our agency. Mm-hmm. So we're real, real proud of that, that many of them wanted to come back and, 
and and be a service provider in the same way that they were serviced when they were kids themselves. But I, I would tell you, it's not easy. I mean, we certainly burn have to have some burnout, uh, but we try to move our folks around and, and keep them motivated. But part of it is is trust trying to understand that you are making a huge difference. But the giving of oneself, uh, it's tough. I mean, you show up at work every day with a full cup, and you hope to leave at the end of the day with an empty cup. But that <laughs> cup needs to continue to get refilled. And so we have to support one another in a very strong way. And, and that's very, very challenging on a daily basis to inspire and motivate the staff to, to stay up and, and to keep swinging because, I mean, you win a lot, but you lose a lot. I mean, mm. you know, every kid doesn't make it. I mean, we've had, you know, some of our kids get murdered and, and you know, through gang activity. You know, we've had, you know, abuse situations. I mean, everything under the sun that one can think of, I mean, we're not immune to any of that. So we've had all of those situations. We've had, we've had staff that we've lost. So all of those things are alive and well. And then like everybody else, I mean, you try to lace them up and, you know, you try to do, put your best foot forward and get the job done, recognizing that every day is not going to be a good day. And when it's not a good day, you hope that you can lean on one of your one of your partners, one of your fellow staff that's having a good day so that they can carry you. And I don't care who you are in this work. There are days when you need to be carried mm-hmm. and there are days when you need to carry someone else. And if you understand that, that's what gets you through, you know, day in and day out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The difficult days. Wow. Well, I, I think that's that's awesome because that so the support isn't just for the kids. It's it's also for the staff and and. You know, you don't want people burnt out and uh, just giving of themselves and and uh, not being able to handle their day to day life because they're so they're so burnt out from their work. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's tough, but uh, that that is the challenge. So I was wondering when you were talking about the coordinators working with adults, um, is is that difficult to get? I mean, do do most of the adults that that you guys need to work with are they are, are they on board or does it take some convincing to get help? Um, do they want help or you know a lot of people even if they're in a really tough situation it's hard for them to accept help. Yeah, yeah, you know, Janine, it just depends. I mean, they're they most folks want help who need help. They don't know how to ask for help. So it's mm. the job of that coordinator to try to figure out how to break that barrier down, how to build that relationship. And again, it, it, it still goes back to trust and relationships. And, you know, we're not we're not the county. We're not the city. And a lot of parents that are in need are fearful of, you know, the, the more formalized entities that would come in and, you know, want to tear you down and tell you what you're not doing. Mm. The key to working with adults is meeting them where they're at. And again, as I said earlier, we believe that every child and every adult has a gift. So you're trying to find the gift. You're trying to figure out how you can validate a parent. Yes, there may be some things there that aren't good, and we can talk about those things. But if I'm a person that has some gift and and all you want to talk to me about is what I'm not doing, and you don't recognize any of the things that I am doing, then I'm probably turned off and don't want to spend much time with you. But if you're talking to me about the good, and then we talk a little bit about the bad, I'm more apt to listen to a little bit of the bad if you've already validated 
that I'm a real person here and that I have some worth and, and, and some purpose, mm-hmm. and then I can hear you. So we try to train our people on how to deal with, with the adults by coming from, you know, meeting them where they're at and then go forward from there and recognizing that everybody has a gift and everybody has some positive that they're bringing to the, to the table. And that makes it easier, but not easy. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, all of these things are difficult when you're dealing with uh, adults as well as kids. But, uh, I mean, there's ways in which you can communicate and have conversations that makes it easier to get people to actually buy in and to open up and to share their challenges and concerns so that you can then identify specifically how to help them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like what you're doing is acknowledging, I mean, I've always felt that that the majority of people are doing the best they can with the tools they've got in their toolbox. And some yeah. people just don't have many tools, um, but they are trying and they are, are doing the best they can. And if that's acknowledged and then you, then you move forward with, okay, what, what can we do better? How can, you know, how can we help? Yeah. And you, and, and you can identify some new tools to put in that toolbox, right? you know, and, and, and that, that becomes, uh, the key to not having to work with them over and over again, because if you can help fill that toolbox with some new tools that helps them better navigate their own circumstance, then that would really be the key. Mm -hmm. Long term is that you'd like to help parents become better parents, help kids become more successful so that they can at some point carry their own water and be examples for their kids Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. they might not need SEI to the same degree. And there's varying degrees of, of SEI students from, you know, students that literally would be dead if not for SEI would be homeless. If not for SEI would have never graduated from high school. If not for SEI would have never gone to college if not for SEI. And then there's those on the other end that come from families that have been very supportive, but, they have gaps in their situation. They may not have the resources or they may not have the connections to open up certain doors. I mean, for instance, this year we had our first student uh, graduate from Harvard School of Law. Well, she comes from two very strong parents, but she was in SEI her whole life, and we opened up doors and gave that student additional opportunities that increased their growth and increased their trajectory where that kid was able to really flourish at a level that they probably, she might not have made had it not been for SEI. We had another kid that's at um, Juilliard, mm-hmm. and she definitely would not be at Juilliard if it had not been for SEI. I mean, there, it costs so much just to get through the process to get into Juilliard mm-hmm. that, I mean, she had two parents, but they didn't have the kind of resources that could support all of that. We supported that for her and got her help her get into Juilliard and she's there doing doing quite well. Wow. So we have those two ends of the spectrum and everything uh, in between. <laughs> <laughs> that actually gives me the chills. That's really that's really yeah. awesome. Um I wanted to uh talk about cuz it seems to be an important part of of the your student success, the individual success plan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the individual success plan is taken from uh, you know, again, I was an educator, so where I first started seeing that kind of plan was an IEP, 
which is something that they use uh, most often in, in, uh, with kids that are in special ed. Okay. But we wanted to look at a way in which we could develop uh, a plan for each kid. So the coordinator will sit down with each student on their caseload early in the year and develop an individual success plan that will highlight some academic goals, some personal goals, and some social goals that the kid should be working on and that across that quarter, the coordinator should be checking in with the student to see how they're doing on the goals that they've written in those three categories in hopes that they would come up with a plan to, to meet those goals. And then each quarter, they can sit down and re-step those, those goals and look at them and determine whether or not you want to change the goals, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a way to have kind of a, a plan for a kid to, to actually have something, some specific goals that they can actually work on. And, and oftentimes, you know, as I say, they're in an academic, personal, and a social realm. So those are the three areas that we normally look at uh, well, for kids. So it serves us very well as a place, as a, uh, a conversation piece and a way <laughs> that for the coordinator to build relationships with that kid and to keep hold them accountable to improvement. Yeah, I think that's an awesome idea. And I also think it's awesome that it's not just academic. Right. Yeah, absolutely not. Because, I mean, the academic is obviously important towards graduation. But, you know, most kids that are struggling in schools, it's not the academics. You know, it, it's the personal stuff that goes on in schools. It's the social side of what goes on in schools. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, the, the bullying, the not fitting in and, you know, all the he say, she say stuff. I mean, and oftentimes it's what's happening at home uh, and the fact that you have kids that are coming from, you know, again, dysfunctional home situations, not getting along with brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers, and they bring that stuff to school with them. And if you sure. don't deal with it, I mean, it's going to impact school, mm -hmm. no question. Mm -hmm. Do you have any bullying at SEI? I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, you know, I, I was – with one of our students that's at uh, Southern Methodist, another one of our successful students, but comes from a single parent household. And, you know, she was got into our program later in the middle school and high school level. And I was just talking, talking to her last year and she told, and I was asking her why she didn't participate in the after school program as much when she was uh, in our program at high school level. And she said, it's because she got bullied because there were some girls that really didn't, she felt didn't like her and would always, you know, pull at her and, you know, uh, threaten her, et cetera, et cetera. And we didn't know that. She didn't tell anybody. She just stopped going. Mm. So it, it was kind of a wake-up call to me that whoever her coordinator was did not pay attention to that situation to the level they should have, because that should have come up in their one-on-one -on -one conversations. And when she wasn't attending the after-school program as often as we would have liked, someone should have noticed that and had that conversation with her. So that certainly let me know that there's some bullying going on. Uh, how often it occurs, I don't know. Uh, but but I, I'm sure in every school situation, to some extent, you're going to have some kids that are, are bullying other kids, just no question. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, if they don't talk about it and it, Sounds like maybe she just kind of slipped through the cracks. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you've got a caseload yeah. of 35, 40, 40 individuals, it, I could see where that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we try to do this from a collective effort where mm -hmm. everybody 
is responsible for all kids. You may be on my caseload, but I'm hoping that even our front desk person, uh, Miss, uh, uh, Miss Brooks, I mean, she knows more about kids than a lot of folks just because she's doing the meet and greet at the front and she's talking to kids when they come through. So you're hoping that everybody does that enough to where you can, somebody would get an inkling if something is not right. But, you know, I would be lying if I, if I try to convince anybody that we don't have some kids that, that fall through the cracks. Of course we do. I mean, we, we do a, a, a great job. But we are not perfect. We are not. We're not winning a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> you know, what you've done is to me. It's so amazing, so necessary. I don't understand why it's why you haven't been asked to set up programs all over the country. I mean, it, you know, Janine, I, I I think I've I've figured out. Part of the reason, uh, and I think it's probably two two pronged. I mean, I, I think part of it is the fact that I haven't put myself out there. You know, I, I haven't done the kind of thing that, say, Jeffrey Canada has done from Harlem's Children's Zone in terms of writing a book and putting yourself out there. So some of this stuff is just one's ability to play the game and, and put yourself out there, either write the book or you get on the, on the conference circuit and you're talking everywhere so people know you. Because a lot of people have never heard of Self-Enhancement Inc. as successful as we are. But the other part of it that I think is difficult, and, and speaking of Jeffrey Cannon, this was similar to, to his situation. The Harlem's Children's Zone can't be replicated. You know, they did the Promised Neighborhoods, which is kind of a takeoff, but Jeffrey knew that all of the work that he does within the Harlem's Children's Zone, it would be next to impossible for somebody to actually replicate all of that. I mean, I think last time I talked to Jeffrey a few years ago, I mean, I think their budget was up to something like 70 or $80 million a year Wow! for all of the work that they do. So, I, you know, I'm not saying that we're the Harlem's Children's Zone, but on a smaller level, the multi-service approach that SEI takes to servicing children and families is very difficult to replicate. If you just look at our school-based program, we could probably replicate that fairly easily. But when you look at all the social service stuff that we do, the wraparound, all of the wraparound services that we do, the fact that we start with kids now at, at uh, fourth or fifth grade and stay with them to age 25, no one is trying to do that. Everybody is looking for a quick fix. So you'll find somebody that just does after-school programming, and they'll try to tell you how successful they are. You'll look at all of these mentoring programs where somebody comes in and works with a kid once or twice a week, and they'll try to tell you that the outcomes that they're getting are magnificent. I mean, you, you got all, all of these people who do business that way and can replicate themselves. I don't think that many of those things actually work. Mm -hmm. uh, to the degree that people try to say they do. And if they did, there's no reason for us to spend the kind of money that we're spending and spend the kind of time that we're spending with kids to get the outcomes that we're getting. I think that we find that most kids in America are on a continuum. And that continuum goes from, you know, the kid that needs 24-7 care to the kid that needs an occasional a caring adult to step into their lives and gives them direction and then everything in between. Mm -hmm. So depending on what you're servicing, and I'm saying that 80 
90% of the kids that we're servicing are on the lower end of this continuum, and they need more than somebody to say hello to them occasionally. They need somebody that's actively involved in their lives. And it's costly to do that, and it's time-consuming to do that. And I don't think many folks can replicate what we've done, the whole, the whole banana. We've had several folks come and view us, and very few of them have walked away unimpressed. But most of them don't follow through and try to do it because of how intense it is and the resources that it takes to do it. We've only had one full replication uh, that has occurred, and that's in Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a, an organization, well, it's through the Alonzo Morning Family Foundation, but it's the Overtown Youth Center uh, in Overtown, in a community right outside of downtown Miami called Overtown. Mm -hmm. And they have replicated our program. We started with them probably 15 years ago and have worked with them over the years. So they are actually fully replicating our school model. Uh, and they, they are every bit as successful as we have been, and we continue to work with them. I mean, the downside is that it's the Overtown Youth Center, so it's not called self-enhancement, even though we've trained them and they're using the, the SEI model. So most folks don't know that that work is connected to us unless you talk to them and ask them, you know, what's the model, and then they'll certainly tell you that they've replicated the SEI model. So very difficult to to replicate all that we do. We oftentimes now think about breaking pieces of our SEI world out and maybe replicating pieces of it. That's you know, what I was thinking program. of. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, and we could probably do that. We could break out, you know, our parent engagement piece or our after-school program or our in-school program. I mean, we could break it into pieces and it would be much easier to replicate those pieces. But our fear is that we couldn't guarantee the same kind of outcomes because we get our outcomes based on a holistic approach that includes in school, after school, and a five-week summer program of which all of our kids participate in. That collective effort, I can guarantee you, I'm going to graduate in the high 90 percentile, and my kids are going to graduate, and 75 to 80 percent of those kids are going to go to college. Mm -hmm. when I can do my entire model. If I'm only doing pieces of it, you know, since we don't do that, I don't know what the outcome might be. Well, what I what came to me was uh, having helping someone start a piece of it with the idea that if it's working well, they will expand and, you know, keep taking on more so that it would be a, a, a more all-encompassing program. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, Janine, we are actually talking to, well, we started that process with a group of individuals, one individual that actually was in our camp when he was a high school kid who now lives in Atlanta, him and some of his friends, we've gone down and met with them uh, a few times. They are, they're starting to do that exact thing this summer. They're going to start with the camps in the same way that we did, mm -hmm. and then they're going to move it into a school in the same way that we did. And we're going to try to build it in the same way that we built this one, but hopefully it won't take them the same, you know, 30, 38 years that it's taken us. <laughs> but, but So we'll be able to move them along a little bit faster, but that, but that is the process that we're going to follow there. Cool. Yeah. Well, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Well, you know, 
I really, I, I'm going to give you some advice. I really think a book. You need a book. Ah. <laughs> uh, even if you don't have time to write it, find a ghostwriter. But yeah. I, I think um, a, a book is, you know, that's that's what seems to get the word out. And it it gives, you know, for some reason, it's, it seems to give some uh, sense of authenticity and uh, uh What's the word I want? You know, a, a person who knows what they're what they're talking about. You, you have you almost have to have a book. But I could see a book describing all that we've been talking about, and then um, uh, breaking down the different programs and and what's possible uh, as a place to start. But yeah. you know, and then I think you should become the uh, uh, the education czar or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, 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 that sounds a little scary to me, boy. That, the way they do business at that level. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I know. It, it probably, you probably couldn't even get anywhere near half done what, you, what you've accomplished on, on a, a smaller level. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of politics up at, at that level. I know that. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yuck. Well, I just, wow, this has been really, really inspiring. I, I hope that uh, people will want to connect with you. So, oh, so how can people connect with you? If somebody is inspired and would really like to explore doing something, uh, even a small portion of what you what you do, how, how would they get a hold of you? How would they learn about um, they could certainly give us a call here. I, they can email me, uh, email address, um, Tony H mm -hmm. at selfenhancement.org. Okay. And they, they certainly could reach us here at SEI, uh, 503-249-1721 is the, the number here to SEI. They can just ask for Tony Hobson or... Renita Kroll, who's my assistant, and she, she would get that information to me. Either one of those would, would be a place to start. And, I mean, we'll, you know, we'll pretty much talk to anybody. Anybody that's trying to help kids and, and do something positive to, to support young people and families, uh, we're, we're certainly uh, would share any of the information that we have that would help them do that. Awesome. And what about a website? Uh, the website, yes, is... Uh, well, it's just www.selfenhancement.org. Okay, selfenhancement.org. And I will have all of this information on the podcast website too. So uh, great. Well, is there anything that you would, uh, you'd like to close with that you, you haven't said yet? Well, I don't know that it's uh, anything I haven't said yet, but uh, I, I just think that we're at a, an interesting place in in America right now with all of the challenges that are are before us uh given whatever your politics are I, I don't think anyone can feel good about some of the disconnect that we're feeling you know across racial lines and across economic lines so I still think that you know education is is still one of the key things that uh, can bring people together at least can give you a lot more knowledge about about things that are impacting us. So I'm, I'm just hopeful and remain hopeful that the work that we do and that others are doing will somehow um, 
stem the tide and lead people in a direction that would bring us closer together. Because at the end, at the end of the day, regardless of race or any of those things, um, you know, we all pretty much want the same things. You know, for our individual selves, for our individual families, and our individual communities. And you know, sometimes through education, you can learn enough to understand what's really important. And hopefully, uh, through the work that we do and others, that we can shed the light on on that for many people to understand what coming together and what collective impact really looks like. It seems like oftentimes we immediately go there in the midst of crises. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can go back to 9-11 and many crises where all of a sudden color doesn't matter, economics doesn't matter. And to me, it would always be interesting if we can find a way to go there without being led by a crisis. Yes. <laughs> Other yes. than the, the crisis of oneness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. We can do that out of need as, a, as opposed to having to do that based on a catastrophe of some sort. So that, that would be my hope and we'll continue to work hard to, to try to lead people that direction. Well, it seems like in a crisis, everybody puts their, it, it, to me, it is so everything, everything in life seems to be so polarized right now. And yeah. people are in a crisis, they're like much more likely to put that aside. And I was yeah. thinking about it the other day and I thought everybody should be an independent. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and look at each candidate, each issue on its merits, period not whether they're Democrat, Republican, or whatever, you know, just, and that's the way I was raised. Both of my parents were independent, uh, generally very liberal, but um, they would vote for a Republican if they really felt that, you know, that that person was, had good ideas and and credibility and authenticity. Um, And, you know, now everything's so polarized, nobody can even listen to, quote unquote, the other side. It's, wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stay hopeful <laughs> at, at this point. I'm going to keep trying to do my part and and stay hopeful because uh really when if you want to look at uh, the news and read the newspapers, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hope there. Yeah. So we got to figure out how to create our create our own hope as we go through the the dark clouds of uh of these days and times. Well, and you are doing more than your share and I for one am very grateful, very appreciative uh, for all that you've done and for who you are. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it, Janine. I, I appreciate having the opportunity to, to share, and uh, it's been it's been fun talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much. Take care. Right, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much, Tony Hobson Sr., for taking time out of your busy life to share your remarkable story with us. I truly appreciate it. The podcast website is realjanine.com where you can listen and download episodes. There are links to guest web pages and you can leave comments and sign up for the Real Janine bi-weekly mail list to keep up on new episodes, life updates, and always a healthy recipe. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Do you know a few people who would love my conversation with Tony Hobson? Maybe someone who needs some inspiration right now? I'll bet you do. Please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.